Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Sin 71 podcast. On today's show, I had the privilege of talking to Carrie Dunn. You might have heard her on some other podcasts as a panelist. You might know her from her free books, Raw of the Lionesses, Pride of the Lionesses, or her new one, Unsuitable for Females. We chat about all of the books, the final last week, and everything in between about the current situation in women's football. So yeah, sit back and enjoy. Carrie, thank you for joining me on this lovely Sunday afternoon. Um, How are you feeling one week on from... Uh, the greatest day in women's football in the UK? Yeah. Oh, I would say so. One week on from one of the greatest days in my life. I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but it it really isn't. Um, I still can't quite believe it happened, Um, even though I keep watching it. It's, yeah, it's just been an amazing time, an amazing week, and I'm so happy. I, I mean, I haven't started crying just randomly during the day for about 48 hours now, so that's not too bad. Although Chloe Kelly going out to take a match ball out of QPR did set me off a little bit, but I wasn't sobbing, so <laughs> we're getting better. Yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, everything I keep hearing or like many at one of the other podcasts you start listening and they start doing the intro and like Robin Cowan's commentary and just everything it's just yeah it's like a crescendo again you're like I tell you what so I thought Robin was excellent throughout the tournament but particularly in the final and I picked my phone up on Monday morning to ring her and I just started crying so I just whatsapped her and said I was gonna ring you couldn't because I started crying give me a week I'll call you next week she's like it's fine I would be exactly the same let's talk next week so (laughs) I'll talk to her soon it'll be fine there was something I don't know I guess her her voice has been great all tournament Mm -hmm. but over say maybe Jonathan Pierce it just felt a lot more I don't know there was something more to it do you know what I mean like this it just had a lot more weight to it in that in those moments yeah, I, I, do, I do know what you mean. Um, I, I think it has been great to have uh, an all-female commentary team and the England matches. I think that's been lovely. But I think, you know, it's not like they're just going to parachute Robin in. She's worked incredibly hard. She's really paid her dues. Um, so I've known Robin since, um, let's think, when my first women's football book, The Roar of the Lionesses, came out. So that's, what, seven years, eight years so we met, I think, that season that I was following. So, yeah, I've known her for a very long time. She's worked incredibly, incredibly hard. I think she's a fantastic commentator. And I'm so pleased that she's, as I sobbed in my voicemail to her just after the final, you are the women's games. Kenneth Walston home now. That's your voice <laughs> immortalised in this magical moment. I'm so, I'm so happy. I'm so pleased it was her. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I was at the final as well. And, you, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't hear anything that wasn't people screaming. And just, it's like, yeah, like Chloe Kelly running off. And I did even think that the, uh, um, I thought the goal was being called for offside for some reason. Because you couldn't, because she was looking around. and She stopped. Uh, uh, and yeah. I had no idea what she was stopping for. The way that she stopped and she was looking over at the assistant referee, you're like, oh, no, oh, no. And then she went up again. I uh, know, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, there was, oh, there was a load of people around me. Were like, and you, everyone was trying to see if we could see the lino. And we like, we cut the light, the flags down, but she looks like she stopped as the ref done something and she called a foul. It's like, oh, but yeah. So there's all that kind of heart racing. I think everyone's like, you know, heart monitoring app on their phone or their watch. Yeah, just the Fitbits were all to... going crazy across Wembley Stadium. <laughs> but it couldn't connect because of the Wi-Fi. So <laughs> everyone was struggling. Like, everyone was like, what's going on? Um. Yeah. So, you know, have you had any other reaction from people around you? So I found, so I, I work as a, I'm currently working as a, um, a building apprentice and talking to the guys who are 
traditionally very into men's football, even all of those had watched it, mostly because I was sort of saying, well, I'm going, I'm doing this. And they were they were impressed. They they knew the names. I don't know. If... Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, I found that kind of every major tournament kind of for the past you know 15 years, people have said to me, oh, I watched that game or they've kind of seen a goal on the on the highlights or whatever and they'll yeah that I think it's because they want to make conversation they know that that's what I do but yes you're right this tournament I feel has been different um I think because it was in England because it was in a kind of a a good time zone and because it was it was being treated like it was a big deal for for the really for, for really the first time I mean I think the other World Cups and Euros have been kind of oh it's been nice aren't, aren't, they, aren't they doing well aren't they working hard wasn't that a good goal that kind of thing and I think now that people are kind of familiar with the WSL as a competition so we're not having to introduce them all all these players every couple of years we know who these players are let's just get on with the football and yeah um I mean, my phone has never been so busy as it was on that on last Sunday evening. Just like ping, 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 and I was like, I can't have this. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, my my husband's friends, who maybe not really into football or certainly not into women's football, they've been watching the tournament and they they were texting, so like, you know, tell Carrie that was fantastic, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's it's been a really different vibe this tournament. I just really hope it continues. And I think having the coverage all available on the BBC, um, just it, every game was available. Like a lot of my friends that I've seen through Instagram have been get, watching in pubs or in like outdoor screenings who I didn't even imagine really liked football at all. But because of it being, you know, the women's game, they've, yeah. they've, they've stepped up. It's being treated as, yeah, it's a proper big deal. And yeah, it was quite funny because I was talking to some other journalists who are a little bit younger than me and we're talking about the 2005 Euros also held in England so that's 17 years ago which to me seems like yesterday but clearly 17 years ago is quite a long time and they were like who was the guest of honour at the opening game in 2005 and we're like I don't think there was one it wasn't even an England match the opening game that the first England game wasn't till like the second game I don't think um yeah it wasn't it it wasn't the same it wasn't the same but if you put yeah it's, it's the it's the cliche isn't it if you build it they will come if you put on big games in big stadia if you put on fan zones in you know middle of cities people will turn up and watch it people want to cheer on an England team doing well and even if they're not doing well they would still turn up to a fan zone because it's fun people like it treat it as a proper spectacle rather than stick it in the middle of nowhere people will turn up yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to hear their like hindsight for all of the clubs because to get all the stadiums that they had to be they had to bid right the stadium the clubs had to bid for the um, for the use of the grounds and you know if you want to use it and and hindsight a lot of them must be kicking themselves now. I hope so. I hope I hope they're absolutely gutted and I hope they've learned from their their magnificently huge error. But we'll see. We'll see. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, you mentioned your first book came out, was it seven, seven eight years ago? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Raw of the Lionesses. Yeah. So that was after, after? Yes, after the 2015 Women's World Cup. So I'd been in Canada, obviously, following the England team. And there was talk then that that was going to be the big turning point for women's football in England. Like, this is this has been a big thing. They've won the bronze medal. They've broken... They've broken all these jinxes, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the idea behind it was to see whether it actually had made a difference, whether it was going to be the big breakthrough for women's football in England, and also kind of look at all aspects of the pyramid too. I've always been very conscious that WSL and WSL2 or the championship as it is now isn't isn't the be all and end all of women's football. Um, there's a pyramid below it because WSL and the championship are relatively small leagues and you have to have a, a pathway leading into it and you have to have that promotion and relegation. And I think there's still quite a quite a balancing act that we need to strike to make sure that everything is sustainable and that everyone is doing okay. And if if a team does get promoted, they're set up to step up if that's what they want to do. Yeah. I mean, so I'm um, just started working with Moneyfields women down here and we're in the Division 4 um, Southwest. So we've got Exeter, who have just announced more money going into them, Cardiff, Bournemouth. A lot of them have got budgets, actual budgets. And, and I say at the moment ours is because we're newly promoted. Mm-hmm. It's, we're not quite at that level yet, but it's it's going to be an interesting season. But, yeah. It's it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because we still have kind of independent women's clubs at relatively high points in the pyramid, and they're in the same division as you know Premier League men's teams who have taken on a women's team or set up a women's team, and they have money coming in now. So yeah, it, it's an odd one. This is why I'm a little bit nervous about the whole kind of shouting about, oh, the Premier League going to take over the WSL, which I think in many ways would be great in terms of kind of the commercial side of it and marketing the league, et cetera, et cetera. But then you think, well, do we want to have a mirror image of the men's Premier League and the women's game? Because, you know, we have teams like Lewis, we have you know, Durham, we have Coventry United. We have a slightly different ethos and atmosphere and community feel, I think, at the highest level of the women's game. And it's not necessarily the same as the men's. Yeah, the the I mean the connection to the the players and the clubs has always been what I found really impressive. Like 2015 for me was when I really got into women's football. Um, after seeing the the World Cup, my, the team in Bristol, the Bristol Academy, as they were, started doing. Um, they had to do a, a GoFundMe or something like that. They did fundraising just to earn a bit more money. Um, yeah, so it's it, like that. So. it is. It, it's 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 a difficult one, and I understand kind of why the very top clubs would think come on it's time to really push as a marketer and get those big sponsorship deals in but yeah you're right there's a there's a different kind of feel to the women's game but then having said that I feel a little bit odd about some of that too you know you see these top female players saying please come and watch our games you know come down please we'll you know we'll, we'll post for photos we'll sign autographs and it's the kind of legwork that male players don't have to do and it's interesting. I talked to um, Alex Colvin, Dr. Alex Colvin, about this. She does work with FIFPRO, used to play herself. And um, I wrote a feature this week about um, pay in women's football. And she was saying women players have to do things like this, kind of please come and watch us play, this emotional labour that aren't included in their contracts, that extra stuff, that marketing of themselves, the stuff that men don't have to do. And no one ever kind of puts a, a figure on it. No one ever kind of quantifies it because it's stuff that women have just, just been expected to do. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but I find it fascinating. And a lot of the players, um, sort of, the first that comes to mind is like Alicia Lemon. It's got a lot of Instagram followers. So, and more than the club, the, the club's um, women's side would. Mm. So her doing a bit of advertising for the club via her Instagram would be, you know, it would go out there. Um, but the, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like you say, it's emotional labour, <laughs> which is... Yeah, and you know, Leah Williamson did it straight after winning the Euros, didn't she? She was like, we want you all to come down and watch WSL every week. Now, right in that moment of triumph, you still have to think about, are you going to come and watch us when we're back at... You know, Meadow Park or whatever so yeah it's an interesting point for the women's game to be at and I think there needs to be some serious thought about the next steps that we go to we can't just suddenly roll out a massive marketing thing and think it's going to work because the women's game doesn't quite work like that yeah I've always I, I love when they put the games in the in the matches in the big in the club stadiums I'm a big fan of seeing it in that area and because it's what the players deserve all the facilities and as much of the crowd as they can get. But then you think about how, if someone's got a season ticket at King's Meadow, are they going to go into, um, mm. to Stamford bridge on the week? Cause a lot of them probably live in Kingston. 
Yeah, and things well, like that. Same with Arsenal and Boreham Wood, isn't yeah. it? And get, get going into Zone Two and going to going to the the Emirates is very very different to going up to Zone Six and going to to Boreham Wood. So yeah, it's it it's a different atmosphere. It's a different ethos, and yeah, it's a it's a time of change. I think. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it work out naturally and hopefully not too quickly. But yeah. I don't know. The same thing with like all of the player videos. They're you know looking around their new home, which is Stamford Bridge, and it's like, well, I mean, technically, <laughs> yeah, technically, uh, <laughs> not yeah. really. <laughs> but I do like that. But that is a, uh, yeah, it's they need to show it and they need to do that. So moving on from a little bit about you know obviously raw. So moving on to Pride of the Lionesses mm. around the the twenty nineteen World Cup. Yeah, that that was an interesting one. So. Raw was the season after a World Cup and Pride was the season leading up to a World Cup. <laughs> and the funny thing was, was that my deadline was like the day after the World Cup final. And of course, England got to the semi-final. And so I was torn between thinking, I really want to win this and thinking, I need to finish this book. <laughs> if they get to the final, I've only got 48 hours to finish it. But um, yeah, so it's like the how these women's football pyramid again is affected in the lead up to a major tournament again at all different levels and to see whether things have changed really because 2015 was thought of as this big turning point really wasn't that much I mean I think people remember it as kind of you know winning the bronze medal and people remember Laura Bassett's own goal and maybe they remember Farrah Williams's penalty in extra time and they remember probably pictures of yeah, Ellen White with a medal kind of into the camera. But in terms of the impact domestically, I'm not sure it did have that much impact. So I guess the reason I wanted to do Pride was to kind of set up to do that all again in a four-year cycle. And we're four years on from this tournament. How have things changed? Have they changed? Go back to some of the same clubs I was with before and how things have changed for them in that cycle, but also with the England team, how things have changed in that setup, if it had. So, yeah, kind of leading up to an, another major tournament in which the Lioness has got to the semi-finals, and um, yeah, going from there. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was like a, I feel like that was my first major tournament for it. I didn't. I had tickets to go. I couldn't end up end up going. But it seemed like that was like France seemed pretty busy. I mean, were you there for a lot of it or all of it? Like, was. Yeah, I was there for the again for the group stages. And the, the way I felt about that tournament, I felt like they I don't think it was brilliantly organized. I feel like England as a setup had started to try and treat it as a very big deal. Um, I didn't think it was necessarily as big a deal as they were treating it as in terms of kind of the media coverage and the number of journalists who were there but I understood why they were doing it so these are elite professional athletes this is how they're prepping you've only got these little slots in which you can actually talk to the players and so the reason I'm still a little bit miffed by it all was they had a whatsapp group set up and they hadn't added me to the whatsapp group Uh. so um there was all these media things going on that I didn't find out about until it was too late and I was livid. But, um, <laughs> but in France, in terms of the organisation, it was pretty much chaotic. I mean, Nice, which lovely place, you know, I would never have got, you know, to afford to go there had I not been planning to go to cover it for work. But um, they were digging up like the entire seafront where there's normally like a tram and a busway. And so they dug all that up. And so you were just kind of slogging across the Côte d'Azur in this blazing heat to try and get anywhere. And I ended up, I think I, I walked to the stadium, which is on the outskirts of the town, because I think it's um, usually a rugby stadium. Then I was trying to get an Uber back. And oh, it was, yeah, it was slightly chaotic. It was not... Not as well organised as I would have expected a major tournament to be. Um, yeah, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to complain too much. I got to go to Nice for work, the Côte d'Azur for work. It was lovely. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, th- I think from what I've seen of this year's Euros, I mean, it's, leaving aside some of the issues there's been in terms of media accreditation, in terms of getting people to the ground and the marketing of it, it seemed much, much better. And the local advertising, because you, you rocked up in these French cities, you were like, you wouldn't have known there was a World Cup going on. 
like at the train station or the airport and stuff. I'm like, well, where where are the posters? Where are the you know, big banners? And I think um, this year they actually did that really well in England. You know, the kind of pop-up stuff in the city centres, the banners along the, the lampposts. I thought that was great. I thought that was really welcoming because even if you weren't actually going to go to a match, you felt you were part of that in the city. And I kind of missed out on that in 2019. That's how I felt anyway. I found so Waterloo had a few banners and things like that. Just little, like train, a major train station just had some, you know, women's Euro banners. And I thought, OK, that's nice. Um, and I think everyone that was, uh, uh, what is it, the Jubilee line that goes to Wembley? I think everyone that yep. was sort of looking on on Sunday was like, oh, I'm not getting on any trains today. <laughs> it's just not going to work. 87,000 people are taking the train. Amazing. But um, something that I was, you know, so when Pride came out and the next sort of wave of people maybe got into women's football. How did you find the book was received from from a, a different, I guess, a different generation again of people getting yeah. into women's football? I mean, I've, ha- I've had very nice comments. And one thing that I always tried to do with both Raw and with Pride was to make sure I was giving some of the context of women's football, so some of the history of the game, just to place it in that kind of moment and kind of what had led up to it because I think there is a tendency quite often to airbrush some women's football history or to pretend that he only really started with the WSL perhaps um and I was always very aware that there were a lot of players who were fighting to play football in the generations before that and so I kind of saw that as my as my little my little stride for that to kind of wave the flag in these two books that were basically about contemporary women's football, but make sure that there was, there was some historical stories in there too. Yeah. I am about 30 pages into uh, pride. I am terrible at reading and finding the time to read. <laughs> and like, I just love films and TV. I've got a TV behind me. I'm, and I'm so I've like, right. I started that. I've started the, um, the Kieran Taven one as well and Jeff Cassie one. So I've got, that's been started and I've gone through so far for that. And it's like, I'm just, I'm, I've, I've always been like this as an adult for books. And I feel so bad that I'm just like, well, I, these are interesting stories and things. And I'm just like, yeah, cool. I'll read a bit. And then something happens or something else happens. And I just, yeah. Oh, my attention span is terrible for it. But I, I think that's quite common to be honest. I think we, we live in an age where it is difficult to sit down and find the time to read it. But, I mean, that's why you have audio books. I mean, a lot of people ask me whether I'm going to get some of my books made into audio books. And I hope I hope that they will be. And I keep saying, if you want that, ask the publisher because they'll listen to readers more than they'll listen to me asking for it. But um, also, I think with, with, with a lot of these books about women's football, you can dip in and dip out and come back to it. And I don't think you'll be any of the worse off for it because you know these are quite self-contained and certainly you know Kieran and Jeff's book as well you can read about one particular moment and then come back to it a few months later and read about the next one you're not going to lose the, the thread of a, of a storyline don't yeah. worry about it you're not going to forget who the characters are no that's it I just like I like knowing the history and and well, I have a big interest in women's football is why we're here and I just feel it's myself I'm angry at myself and then I feel like <laughs> Kieran knows somehow or Kieran and Jeff know that I've that I've not they finished judge this. You. They exactly they just know somehow, and it's and it's I feel bad about it. And now you know that I started. Now you've just, and, you've I, just told me. You've just told me. I like I, I got a signed copy because I think you put out a DM or a, a, a post ages ago on Twitter, and I got a signed copy. And I'm like, I got a signed copy, and I haven't even read the book. And now we're speaking here, and I'm <laughs> yeah, so it's my fault. It's all my fault. So you know, I wanted the book, and I've got the book, and I've started reading. But yeah, my uh, my uh, yeah. My In your own time, terrible. it's fine. Don't <laughs> don't feel forced to read it. You won't enjoy it if you feel forced. No, no, I yeah, that's probably true. Um, so aside from me not reading it, and lots of other people giving you good feedback, um, how do you think it's? How do you like it to be remembered? As in this point, I mean, obviously it's a, a snapshot of a of a specific time and a bit before, but. Do you, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, like with many of these moments in women's football, this is, 2019 was a big moment and this is a great way of encapsulating it. Do you, what more would you have liked to have seen from that that hasn't already happened maybe from, from the, the book coming out? Oh, that's, that's too grand. Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> it's a, it's a really big question. I mean... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess, 
So with 2015 and 2019, both those World Cups, yes, you're right, it's a, it's a snapshot. And I'm glad that I actually got the take up from a publisher to be able to publish that book, to be able to give those snapshots in those times, because I feel like a lot of people will come to women's football now in 2022, because why would you not? It's been a fantastic tournament and having a winning England team is bound to attract people in. Um, maybe a couple of them will want to see you know, how were things before that? And I was able to capture just a little bit of a small moment in women's football history in those two books. So, yeah, it, I, I guess that that's what I, I would have hoped that they would both be able to be remembered as. But in terms of what I would have hoped to have seen by now, it's, it's a difficult one because obviously the pandemic threw a lot of things off. So we're like a, a year off schedule in terms of the uh, the tournament scheduling. We've got a World Cup coming up next year, which is just ridiculous, bearing in mind we've just had a Euros. So it's a really tricky one because we're still on that four-year tournament cycle with the World Cup, but we had a we have we've had two years where things were just a bit odd altogether. So it's difficult. I think ask me again after next year, and then I think we'll be able to assess a bit better because we'll have had 2015, 2019, uh, 2023 Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, which is an interesting place to have it as well. And I'll be fascinated to see how a uh, UK audience responds to that time zone as well, because even Canada was tricky for a lot of viewers and mm. Australia and New Zealand would be very, very much worse. But I, I guess at least it will be in their winter. So it won't be, well, not. it's not cold. It's going to be cold there, but it's not going to be <laughs> roasting, thankfully. No, no, it will be it'll be nice conditions in terms of the weather. But I'm just thinking about uh, viewing figures uh, on the telly back at home. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I think everyone's just going to have to book a month off and yeah, I think acclimatise to Australian time. Whoever the new prime minister is, I'm sure they'll get on that straight away. You will have the month off. Watch the football. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. They won't have to worry about the workforce or anything. Or you know, a major recession. No, no, it'll be fine. Um, so I guess we, this moves on to the um, the new book, Unsuitable mm. for Females. Um, we gave away a copy the other day. Yay! Congratulations to Becky. Congratulations, Becky. Um, is there a part of you that is a little that you gutted you didn't maybe wait, not gutted, but wait till after the the final happened, or were you like happy to be like to cut that there and then? Because no. after you said about the the 2019 deadline, I thought you know maybe you were. No, I was absolutely dead sure that I wanted to make sure it was out before the 2022 Euros being in England because I felt like that was going to obviously be part of massive change regardless of what happened but also because I wanted to I wanted to write a, a book that gave more of the history of women's football so people kept saying to me did you ever really want to write a, a broad history of the women's game and didn't really want to write a broad history because that's not really my kind of thing. I like to kind of sit down with people and get their experiences in more depth than doing something that's kind of detailed across a longer stretch of time. So that's why I came up with the concept of doing this kind of pen portraits of different moments of different people um, and piece together. They give an indication of the broader arc of women's football history. And initially, um, my plan was to finish or finish the book. Um, so it, it cut off in 2011 when the WSL started. I was thinking, well, you know, after 2011, it's pretty well documented. We have lots of TV clips. We have media reports. You know, there's no need for me to write anything else. And then I was thinking about us. I, I think I actually do. Um, and the thing that really was well, two things that really pushed me to continue. Um, Partly seeing Southampton um, progress under under the watchful eye of Marianne Spacey, who was obviously a fantastic player of her era as well. And I wanted to write about them because they have a fascinating part in women's football history stemming back to like the WFA era of the like, 1960s and 1970s. And there's been lots and lots of clubs in Southampton operating at the same time. They felt like three different clubs it's just very confusing so I wanted to kind of try and untangle some of that and, and also look at the club as it is now that has just uh, made the jump up 
And also, um, I wanted to tell some of the Notts County story. So they folded basically just before the spring series started, just a few years ago. And I feel like everyone seems to have forgotten that. Uh, it was kind of like, I think because it was, it happened just before the competition started, it was just quite easily you know, ignored because we're just going into the football. If it happened at maybe the end of the season or during a season, maybe there might have been more talk about it. But because it was at the start of something, it was just like, oh, but it's the first match this weekend. We need to need to move on, talk about football. And so I wanted to write about that because, I mean, there were some media reports about it and there are some uh, quotes from the time of you know, some of the players you know, talking about how shocked they were to find out but I wanted to kind of talk to some of the players about how they feel about it now. Are they still as shocked? As they are they still as angry as they quite understandably were about the way it all happened? So yes, it kind of ended up extending into basically almost very nearly extending into today's um, WSL, and kind of looking at looking ahead a little bit, but mostly looking back from where we are now and just looking at how far we've come and how far there is still to go. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's so many stories that, are, as you said, that keep going and that keep needing to be told. Um, what was some of the best rabbit holes that you found yourself falling into in a research purpose? Cause you know, I can do it just on YouTube, let alone going into a, something with documented history. Well, the interesting thing is with women's football history, actually women's history in general, before a certain point, it's really hard to actually dig out documents because there just isn't isn't the paperwork. So obviously with women at the start of the 20th century, usually if they got married, they'd have changed their names. So it's difficult to kind of you know say with certainty that this person is, is also this person. And also a lot of the early female players played under stage names or pseudonyms. So it's just like, is that person actually that person or is she actually somebody else? So that's all quite tricky. Um, and because a lot of these stories didn't start getting written down until kind of the past 30, 40 years. So we have some eyewitnesses, some eyewitness accounts still to draw on, but not necessarily a lot from like the 1920s and 1930s. So that's really difficult. So it's kind of piecing things together and making it make some kind of logical sense is one of the big challenges. But I guess one of the one of the wonderful rabbit holes, I suppose, was that um, with the earliest players from the first official England team, so the 1972 team that were put together, um, Obviously, some of them, are, well, they're all senior citizens now, pretty much. So it's kind of trying to get hold of them. They're not going to be like on Twitter necessarily, like like the rest of us are all the time. They're not on Instagram necessarily. So it was trying to kind of locate them. But once she'd got one, she would put me in touch with somebody else, who would then put me in touch with somebody else. And that was just brilliant. It's kind of like a domino effect. It's kind of like, yes, I've got all of these people. But then, of course, I'm then thinking... I've got so much material. How am I going to tell this kind of snapshot of this particular era? How am I going to piece all this together? How am I going to choose what to put in? So that was pretty fantastic to talk to some of these incredible women who were playing in 1972 about, about their memories. And uh, actually, it comes back to what we we're saying at the beginning. After the final whistle went last week, the first thing I, de I did was WhatsApp and email all the players that I'd spoken to, uh, the England players from 1972 and from 1984, the first Women's Euros final, and just said, I hope you've enjoyed the day because this is for you as well. I feel I feel like it was a very communal experience uh, last Sunday. It, it wasn't just for those players on the pitch. It wasn't just for those people in Wembley. It was for everybody who's ever watched women's football, whether they're new fans or whether they're long-term fans. It's for those players who got those players there, those women who didn't get to play at Wembley, um, the the women who kept women's football alive when it was banned. And it was a massive honour to be able to talk to some of these players about their experiences and what they went through and how much they love women's football and what they've done to get the game where it is. So that was fantastic. I, I want to know how some of those responses were. Like That must have been 
They must have been so happy. Oh, they they were so happy, so happy. Um, a, a lot of them were there, which is lovely. Some of them oh, awesome. weren't able to be there, but a lot of them were. And they're just like, that was incredible. And so many of them were, were, were crying. They were so happy. And it, it was like that they had played that, that 120 minutes just, just as much as the girls on the pitch. Did you, like? and this is going off a little bit, but did you ask them about how they how today's football compared to what they were doing at all when they were playing. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I haven't read the book yet, uh, <laughs> but I didn't know if what, what's made it in and what hasn't. Yeah. Um, um, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that a few players said, which intrigues me, was that because they had so little coaching back in the day, because, you know, they couldn't, because they were amateurs, they couldn't train every day. Um, they were what they called natural footballers. And, they compared themselves to today's players quite often and say today's players are much better athletes, but they're not necessarily sure that today's players were necessarily better natural footballers than them. And I find that a really interesting distinction to make because I completely get that because if you're not being coached, but you're still representing your country at football, you must be have a, a natural talent in there. And I guess there are lots of things that, can, that you can be coached on and that you can work on, and like you know, like fitness, like your ball skills. If you're training every day, then you are going to get better and better and better. But yeah, I thought that was very, very interesting, the way that they... I mean, they were pretty sure that had they been given the chance to train every day, had they been given the chance to turn pro, um, a lot of them would have been just as good as the women we see today. Oh, that's That's a... Yeah, that's such a... A, a nice a nice image to have if it all if it all worked out in that way that, yeah I, I mean i saw some some people on on twitter kind of talking about um you know the the previous generations of of female footballers and i was like but the thing is like watching watching alessia russo and that back heel goal you know there, there are plenty of other instances in women's football history i am sure where something like that happened we just haven't had it documented this is just this is this is just the you know ridiculously cheeky fantastic goal that we've seen live on our television with millions of us watching think about all the talent that that has been lost but also the talent that did play and that just hasn't had its chance to be spotlighted and that we are never going to have access to the tv archive to yeah that is, I, that's all I kind of really want now moving forward is I want these like YouTubers just to clip up all these like players so you can get like a, an Ellen White highlights reel, like an, you know, amateur made, but, but there's, there's not really quite anything of that yet. There's no, little bits, we, we, but not anything. I think we'll get there. I think we are getting there. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, and, you know, an interesting thing that I had, that I was asked to do over the past month was um, write a match report of the 1984 second leg final. Um, as if I was there at the time, because you know, no newspapers covered it. I think there was like a paragraph in the sports news in brief in the Daily Telegraph of England versus Sweden in the first Women's Euro final. Anyway, but that was really interesting because there's not actually a full recording of the entire match. There's like extended highlights, but there isn't actually a full recording that I've managed to locate yet. And we found some pictures that hadn't been seen before. So that was quite exciting. But so I was also relying on some of my conversations with some of the players about what happened in that match. And their memories don't match together at all. And it's, you know, it never is going to, you know, if you talk to people about, mm. you know, anything, if you were there and yeah. I was there and we saw the same thing, we describe it in different ways and we remember it differently. Any of you with smaller brothers and sisters or older brothers and sisters will know the same thing. You remember things from your childhood very differently. So this is talking about 40 years ago, football match. And they don't remember the same things. I mean, I had one player remembering like slipping when she took a penalty and none of the others remembered that. And I'm like, well, how do I know? I don't know what actually happened. And I said to this player, I'm not, I'm, I don't know. Did this actually happen? She said, well, I think it did. That's how I remember it. It's like Schrodinger's penalty. I don't know who took it or when and whether <laughs> she actually did fall over. So, yeah, it's it's 
you know, it's it's fun and it's funny and it's entertaining as a writer, but also as a football fan, it makes me really sad to think about these women who played in awful conditions this the second leg, Kenworth Road, the pouring rain, absolute bog of a pitch. I mean, even the extended highlights, you see them wading through this mud because it's just pouring and pouring with rain. But of course, they were amateurs, so you didn't have the flexibility to reschedule because these Swedish girls have flown over. They have to go back to work the next day or two days after so yeah it's really sad to think that yeah this history has been lost to an extent but I am so pleased that I'll be able to play even a little role in documenting some of it even if we're not quite sure what is actually accurate their memories of it of course has massive massive value too yeah and I think that's a, a great way to see it as well to see how someone sees something in that way Maybe it's not completely accurate, but it's such a nice story to at least hear from them as well. You know, so they're they're, they're painting everyone's painting a different picture, as you said, but it's actually getting that entire like canvas must be so interesting. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of talk talk to them about how they experienced playing in a final, because you know, I talked to Carol Thomas, who was the captain of that England side. And I was like, how do you get a team G'd up? for a second leg of a final when you played the first leg two weeks ago you haven't had a training camp together you know you've gone home gone back to work for two weeks and then come to Luton to play the second leg and so talking about how she managed that part of the captaincy and the dynamics in the squad and then also being able you know finding these pictures um, and saying do you remember this day she's like I've never seen these pictures before but I remember that day <laughs> this is what happened just it was just really really cool thing to be able to do that is amazing. Um, so obviously you said you've got so much research, so much information, and I guess a lot, an amount didn't make it into the book. Um, have you had any ideas of how to, where to put that, like any kind of um, uh, museum or um, installation, things like this? I have um, some ideas about what I'd like to do um, with some of the things that I found out and what I'd like to do next, but there are ongoing thoughts about it shall we say um i know that brighton have a fantastic installation of women's football history on at the moment so i should be down there next month to have a look and have a talk and talk about my book with some of the uh curators down there too so yeah i guess it's a it's a watch this space at the moment was there any i suppose there was any one piece of information that just like floored you that really just knocked you down just like oh my god <laughs> was there anything like that anything that kind of really like sort of ton of bricks like hit you that you had that you'd found out during, during oh that the, there was loads of things I mean one of the incredible stories that I kind of started to uncover um so I was talking to some of the uh, first England squad and one of them was saying that she'd been really inspired by an older girl or older woman in her local side when she was a kid and she put me in touch with her and this lady called Veronica Bailey and she was playing for the Manchester Corinthians and travelling the world and set up Mac late Mac Macclesford ladies uh, in the 60s and 70s. And she's just immense. She's I, I spoke to her a few times and she, she said to me, um, if you look on YouTube, there's a Pathé news clip of me playing football. And I was like, are you serious? And she's like, yeah. They went as Corinthians on this tour of Germany. Yes, it was Germany. And she said that Bert Troutman, so the, the famous goalkeeper, was on their flight. And he was at this tournament too. And she's actually dead on. I looked on YouTube. There's this YouTube Pathé News clip of, her, of this team playing football. And she said, the skinny little girl jumping to head the ball at the end. That's me. And it's amazing to think that, just, again, it's just a little snippet. And, of course, Pathé News is not kind of a comprehensive match highlights or anything. But to have to, even that little insight and kind of matching up with what she's telling me is just incredible. And she she gave up football and she um, went into into running and she'd done all sorts of like ultra running events and yeah, mountain climbing and goodness knows what else. She was absolutely amazing. And... I suppose that's another thing that's been really awesome. It's not just about women's football history and how great they were as players when they were younger. These are incredible women, you know, at any age, they've grown into incredible older women and they're, they're still amazing role models. And I always feel a little bit, a little bit nauseous when the whole role model thing gets wheeled out about uh, the women 
players because they're not just role models, they're footballers and the men aren't expected to do that all the time. But these women are just, you know, incredible, incredible people to look up to and admire for what they've achieved throughout their lives, not just fighting against the ban and playing through it and organising themselves into their own football teams and putting up with all the nonsense that they would have got at the time, but what they've gone to achieve afterwards as well. You know, Carol Thomas is, has climbed Kilimanjaro and goodness knows what else. Just, they're just incredible. They just never let anything stop them. I think there is something to be said for team sports in that way, for maybe quieter people or for people that aren't quite a little more reserved, a little more introverted. Team sports really is a, a great way to bring out bits of you you didn't know, I think. Um, mm. And it's and things like that, like with, with, you know, taking on different adventures after, I guess, yeah, battling the football world mm. for so many years and, and, you know, doing really well in it. Yeah, definitely. To hear these sort of stories. Definitely. And, you know, and of course, some of them um, went on to to coach this generation of girls that we've got now. So Sylvia Gore, the late Sylvia Gore, who um, scored the first official goal for England. You know, she was instrumental in the development of players like you know uh, Sue Smith, for example, who has then obviously been inspiration to the next generation. So you know that that kind of link between the generations is there, and it's important that we don't forget that. Yeah. Something I wanted to, was going to touch upon was sort of why you, why you felt these stories were important to tell. But I think just, you know, talking for 44 minutes about these stories, you can see why they were important to tell. Um, is there any more stories you'd like to see told? Maybe not from yourself, but from other people. Um, what what kind of, what, you know, obviously there's so many. So what is there any like one thing you're like, someone needs to tell this? Yeah, there are so many. This is the thing. I've only just started to scratch the surface. Um, there are some other fantastic women's football history books out as well. You know, Gail Newsham's stuff about the Dick Kerr ladies, and, and, you know, incredible life's work there. I know that um, Gary James is writing a lot about women's football in Manchester. Of course, Susie Rack's brilliant book, um, A Woman's Game, who's just, which has just come out. Um, so... You know, these stories are starting to be told, but it can only ever be a fraction of it. There is, There must be so much more that we can dig out. There must be so much more archival stuff that we can go through and piece together some more of these stories because these are only the ones that, that we're starting with. It's imp so important to tell those histories so we can understand where we are now and where we can go next. Yeah, 100%. Um, and you say we're a, a fan-led blog, so we were always trying to get more people, you know, writing for us. Um, it, it's if they want to write, they can write. If they want to do a match report, they do a match report. If they've just got a certain area of interest that they want to bring into into the blog, just to you know shine some more eyes on it, then we you know we really welcome it. Um, would you? What would you have advice-wise for anyone that is maybe looking to step up to doing a bit more writing, or even to start writing now that they've been inspired by? by all these players I would love that I'd love to see um, more people coming into particularly women's football writing because it's it's been a place where there hasn't been that well there's been a certain few of people dedicating their lives around women's football to get a diversity of perspectives to get new demographics writing about women's football and women's football history and women's football future would be absolutely incredible so I guess my only advice really is just write. Don't let people put you off. Don't don't feel nervous about it. Put 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 the words together and and have your confidence in yourself. Be inspired by the by the people that you that you've been watching, and don't be afraid. Be be as fearless as them. Just write. Just write. I like that. Just write. What kind of got you into the the lionesses or the England side of things when you when you first started? Sort of. I don't know. Maybe looking into um, more sports writing. Because you've obviously you've done a, you've got other books, mm. yeah, and you did a, a a sociology sports sociology PhD. So, where did the link come into women's football for you? I guess so. I've always been a sports writer, so I started you know writing like match reports and for, for different football newspapers and things um, when I was a student, and then um, when I started uh, freelancing full time, I was working for some. Uh, national newspapers and I'd always watch women's football and watch women's sport particularly and um, although I had a had a colleague in the newsroom and another woman and she was also into um, women's football and we would be kind of 
saying, I think we should write about the England team. I think we should cover this, cover cover that. And I reminded her actually last week, she she'd blocked it out, I think. We actually spent a lot of the summer of the summer of 2007 trying to convince our editor to cover the Women's World Cup. And they were just like, mm, we're not really keen on it. And we were just like, it's the Women's World Cup. And uh, anyway, uh, leaving that aside, but it, it was kind of a bit, little bit like that. And I was kind of, it sounds ridiculous, but I was pleased that two years later, I actually convinced another editor to do a minute by minute report on the uh, website of the European final. And I was like, hooray, I've you know, kind of twisted their arm enough that we can do a minute by minute report of England women in a major final. Um, but that kind of gives an indication of what it was like at that point. But then by 2011, um, one of my editors did send me to Germany to cover the Women's World Cup. I was planning to go anyway. And they were like, well, you know, we'll we'll take some reports while you're out there. And that was my first kind of major tournament in person that I was covering. So it's it's been a bit of a slog. But after 2011, that was so interesting. I mean, it was it was not like uh, again, it wasn't like the tournament. Now I was in the same hotel as as the England squad in, in Dresden, and it was just like you come down to breakfast as the England squad. Can you imagine that now? I don't think that they would allow the press to be in the same in the same hotel as the uh, uh, as the squad. I don't don't think the press could afford it. But um, yeah, so it, it it's kind of gone from there really. So so twenty eleven World Cup and then following them in every tournament since then um it's been fascinating to see how it's progressed from um obviously hope pal and and her era and through the mark sampson years through phil neville and into what we've got now um i'm very excited to see where things might go next yeah yeah, the only way is up. I feel. Hope so. I mean, this is what I keep saying this week. People saying, you know, is this um, is this you know the pinnacle? It's not. But it can't be. It can't be the pinnacle of women's football. This has to be the starting point. I say, as a, as we said, we've got the World Cup in in twelve months' time. We've got a World Cup to go and win. Now we can't we can't rest our laurels. Let's go and do that. Yeah, and then get the clubs competing for later in the Champions League stages and anything else that needs to happen and yeah a lot done a lot more to do yeah yeah that's it that's it right i'll, I'll leave you there i'll let you get back on with you at the rest of your sunday so thank you so much for chatting thank to you me. so much for asking me thanks again to carrie dunn please head over to her website carriedunn.net and see everything that she's written and where you can find it to purchase Thanks again for listening. And if you're on a podcast application that allows you to like, rate or subscribe, please do that. Please give us any feedback on Twitter or on Instagram, any of those platforms as well. And we'll see you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.